0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Carmen Martinez-Novo to talk about her book titled Undoing Multiculturalism, Resource Extraction and Indigenous Rights in Ecuador, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021, which looks at a really interesting period in Ecuador's recent history, focusing particularly on the 2007 to 2017 period, that on the one hand has this big presidentially led citizens revolution that talks about getting rid of colonialism and uh, prioritizing the rights of Afro-Indigenous people. Um, And yet, on the other hand, as shown in this book, that's not actually what happened and that's not actually what the presidential administration's policies really did on the ground. Um, And that's a really interesting puzzle um, that this book tackles and unpicks and helps us understand. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Carmen Martinez-Novo to the podcast to discuss it.
1: Thank you, Miranda. Thank you very much for uh, discussing my book and having me
0: here. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Yeah, there are many answers to that, uh, but I'll... I'll use one one of them because um, I'm actually originally from Spain. I'm not from Latin America, and um, I think. Um, I have been interested in this topic that I'm um, discussing in the book since I was a child. I come from a background in Spain of the Spanish left, like even my great-grandfather was an anarchist, my grandfather was a socialist, my father fought against the Franco dictatorship. And when I was a child in my neighborhood was a neighborhood in which there was a lot of uh, social movements that were of the left and suddenly some um, Roma people move into my neighborhood. And I saw the reaction of the people there with the They didn't want, didn't want to allow the children, uh, the Roma children to go to our schools and people were demonstrating against them. And I think that's a kind of a reason why I have been interested throughout my career on questions of race and racism, and also particularly of how This puzzle, as you say, of why people who are interested in social justice and equality could at the same time have these stereotypes about other people. Um, So my work um, throughout my career has been comparing how uh, ethnic groups are seen from the outside and represented from the outside and how that contrasts to the way they understand themselves. So my book on Mexico is is about that is entitled who defines indigenous and it's about how indigenous people in the Mexican border are seen from outside. Uh, And um, that preoccupation continued with this uh, book on on Ecuador. The other thing is, uh, well, it's a long term um, research that I did in this book. Uh, uh, The research has been going on for almost like 20 years uh, and um, I started in the neoliberal period looking at uh, what has been called um, neoliberal multiculturalism, the question of um, pro-ethnic policies under uh, uh, this kind of extreme form of capitalism. And I was always very critical of them and always look at the tensions uh, during that period. But then I was in Ecuador when Correa was elected. and. Um, I I went through all the transformations there. I was living there at the time and um, it was very different from the earlier period and it was very paradoxical, as you said, very, one thing that caught my attention and that's kind of a long-term preoccupation of mine is the contrast between what it seems and what it actually is. Mm. And particularly like people who uh, apparently are concerned with social justice, but then um, do uh, otherwise in their uh, daily practices. So I think that's that's part of the reason why I decided to, to write this book in which a very important part of the book is to look at indigenous issues from outside and inside, from uh, the sides of power and from uh, the uh, native communities at the same time and contrast those two uh, points of view.
0: Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think you actually have not only explained why you're interested in writing the book, but also exactly what drew me to wanting to read it, which is always being curious when there's a situation where what it says is happening and what is actually happening don't match up. Um, and so I think that that makes a lot of sense of kind of a driving uh, reason to investigate this. And as you said, look at these issues from multiple points of view and perspectives Um as you've done in the book, and hopefully we'll do a little bit of a tour of the book to see some of those contrasts and paradoxes and hopefully understand them a bit better. Um, But before we kind of start on looking at those different sides, um, I think there's some important foundational understandings to discuss, which have to do with some key terms you talk about and definitions. Um, And there are four in particular that I think were really key to understanding everything that comes next um, so I'll probably list them all out now, but uh, if you if you give us a few of them and need reminding, that's fine. <laughs> I've got them written in front of me. Um, but the first is post-neoliberal, multiculturalism, then extractivism, and finally, indigenismo. Can you help us understand what these terms are in this context?
1: Uh, yeah, let's start with post-neoliberal. So... Um there was like a worldwide reaction to neoliberalism. So I think to understand post-neoliberal first, we have to define neoliberalism, actually, which I understand as a set of um, policies, uh, kind of a style of capitalism that starts around the 1970s that is based on uh, on free trade. Uh, that's one, one thing. Uh, it's based on... Um, Capitalists taking power from uh, also the working class uh, by uh, precari- making labor more precarious through strategies like subcontracting or temporary contracting or part-time and things like that where uh, there was a core maybe of full-time workers with benefits but a big uh, kind of growing population of people with precarious uh, uh, forms of um, precarious uh, jobs and uh, there are other characteristics of of neoliberalism but uh, in the case of latin america also for instance a kind of the state becoming a, a smaller instead of having like a say in the economy and having public enterprises and subsidizing parts of the economy the state restricting itself to just kind of Regulation. So there there are a number of characteristics of neoliberalism. Uh, I don't do, I mean, it's, it's a very um, long conversation, so I will focus more on post-neoliberal, but there is a moment in which uh, populations throughout the world kind of get uh, resistant to this kind of, uh, of policies. And I think Latin America is one of the first regions to resist a neoliberalism. And then around the year, kind of the end of the 1990s, or maybe a little bit early, social movements are resisting neoliberalism. But at the end of the 1990s, a number of governments are elected that are of the left in Latin America. Some people call them the pink tide or the turn to the left or socialism of the 21st century. And this is part of what I discuss in the book because these names have a meaning and they kind of reflect the position of the speaker depending on whether people use pink tide or socialism of the 21st century or turn to the the left. But all these governments are elected on the basis that the population uh, the majority of the population in these countries have been impoverished and is tired of, of these uh, policies and resistant to privatization and to the discontinuation of subsidies and so on. That's Latin America. In the case of, um, I mean, that's kind of a worldwide uh, discussion also because in the case of Europe and the United States, there is also movements around, and that gets stronger around 2008 with the 2008 um, crisis in which you have movements like um, the Indignados in Spain or Occupy Wall Street in the United States or um, the movement in Greece uh, of uh, Agasti Comenoi. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly, but all these kind of left-wing movements that are looking for alternative uh, ways. Uh, so there was a, a whole discussion in the bibliography of whether this um, political movements, and uh, when they came to power in certain places in the world, whether they had been able or not to overcome uh, neoliberalism. So my position there in in the case of Ecuador is that uh, what happened under Correa is not the same as what was in place under neoliberalism. It's different, but it's not necessarily a an improvement or better. And that's not because I'm defending neoliberalism, but it's because neoliberalism had a side that was the liberalism. It was, um, even though uh, there was an impoverishment and the inequalities were not overcome, there was kind of a tolerance towards uh, diverse opinions uh, and increasing participation and so on that doesn't um, happen in. Um, in the case of Ecuador after uh, Correa is elected. So, um, well, they use, um, and then you have to see how how the terms are used, but uh, Correa himself and his government use post neoliberal to claim that they had overcome neoliberalism. But I prefer to use another term because a lot of people use post neoliberalism in the sense of um, they overcame neoliberalism and they have better policies. And as I say in the book, I prefer to use um, nationalist extractivism because I think what was very important in the case of Korea and also some other governments uh, in the region is the nationalism, the kind of um, the idea of having a bigger, stronger, more controlling state and also the uh, focus on the extraction of uh, natural resources. I think those two things were very, very important. And there was like a rhetoric that was uh, of the left, uh, but uh, that didn't necessarily match the policies. So that's kind of the debate around post-neoliberal. There is a lot to to say about um, that, but I I prefer to change the term, but I have to explain it in the the book. But that's one of the least... um, Parts of, the, of my work that is sometimes misunderstood because people think that when I criticize Correa, I am arguing that he's actually neoliberal and not post-neoliberal, but I think he's very different from neoliberal. For instance, his state became much more much stronger, the state grew, he hired a lot of uh, government officials. he tried to micromanage a lot of the territory and the policies as opposed to the neoliberal state, which is a state that is more kind of um, less fair state. So Korea is very different. he's micromanaging, he's much more authoritarian. He's not about kind of recognition and participation. He's about kind of managing the identities and the social movements and all that. So I think it's, it's a very different moment. And I experienced it as a citizen there because I was living there. And the daily life kind of totally changed from the previous uh, moment to the moment of uh, after Korea was, was elected. So I think it's very different, but it's not neo- neoliberalism and it's not necessarily... Better without meaning that neoliberalism was good, but there is a side of neoliberalism which is kind of this this tolerance, this participation that changes when the government becomes more what I call in the book semi semi authoritarian. It still has elections, but. Uh, there is kind of a a very strict control of civil society that I try to go over in the book in in a lot of detail. So that would be post-neoliberalism. Oh, my God, I hope I. the other terms are are maybe not that. That's one of the most kind of difficult and controversial. But 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 it's really
0: important. Um, So I'm glad you've explained that. Um, But yeah, shall we move to extractivism? Because you've already mentioned that one.
1: Yeah, multiculturalism, I will be very brave because we skipped it. And uh, with multiculturalism, I mean the state policies to kind of include uh, ethnic populations through education, through autonomy, territorial autonomy, uh, through anti-discrimination laws, and, and so on. So that's what I call multiculturalism. And the problem with neoliberal multiculturalism is the idea of having a policies that try to be inclusive and promote participation, but at the same time not having a redistribution of resources, uh, of a kind of, um, yeah, like, like keeping the poverty intact while trying to include the populations from a more symbolic point of view. So that would be the multiculturalism. Extractivism is a term that doesn't exist in English, but it's starting to exist (laughs) because uh, it's a term coming from Latin America, actually. So you can translate as natural resource extraction, uh, but um, it's becoming more and more important because it's a big debate in Latin America and throughout the, the global South. It's basically... Uh, it has different definitions, but one of it, like the street definition, is a system based on the, in which kind of the whole state and society is focused or depends on the extraction of a few natural resources, like basically oil and mining. Sometimes in the case of Ecuador, is copper, but it can be uh, some of the things. It can be natural gas or it can be um, coal. And the, idea is that how that uh, focus on the extraction of natural resources, it goes beyond kind of what happens in the sites of extraction or it it, it has many different repercussions in in society. It changes as many people have studied before, like it changes the political dynamic when a government doesn't depend on the taxes of citizens, but it depends on a on the revenues from resources. It doesn't have to negotiate as much with society. And that's coming from uh, some political um, theories. Um, or um, there are many, many other um, uh, sides. And uh, some people have argued that um, we have to have like a wider view of extraction of natural resources, not only Kind of focus on what happens in the particular places where uh, mountains are kind of uh, blown away <clears throat> to extract coal, or where uh, oil is extracted and pollution is left there, and people get sick and so on. That's one very important side of it. Then you have climate change, which is which is a really <clears throat> a central side of it. But there are other effects at the societal level, and that's what I'm trying to to look at. Uh, Some authors argue uh, about kind of whole cultures of extraction, and sometimes extraction happens in rural places, so urban populations are not that aware, although I think younger people, uh, and in general, kind of, uh, we are becoming much more aware uh, of climate change and and the effects of extraction. Uh, But um, there there are many that are not... um, that um, kind of um, clear-cut. For instance, how how do you connect extraction of natural resources to intercultural education? Well, I I do the connection in in the book because intercultural education is the way indigenous people raise their political consciousness and their cohesion as a group, and it strengthens the social movement, and then the social movement is a movement that fights extraction. So, But some of the things are not obvious, so I wanted to raise that that idea. So I look at extractivism in a narrow sense as the extraction of a few resources, because actually what happened interestingly under the turn to the left in Latin America is that those countries eh, became much more dependent on one resource, maybe on on oil or mining and so on. Eh, They kind of eh, reprimarized their economies, they came much more dependent than before, which is also kind of paradoxical because the left has always argued that extraction pollutes and that extraction exploits workers and that is controlled by transnational companies or by the states. So it's very interesting that the left would be pushing this program. But on the other hand, is how they uh, finance their governments. And there is another side that is interesting. I argue in the, in the book that because... The countries, and I mean Ecuador, Venezuela, Bolivia, for instance, wanted also to become more independent from the United States in order to kind of change their policies away from neoliberalism and from the kind of pressures of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. They tried to become independent, but the way to become independent is, and the reason they could become independent is because they had the money from oil. And mining at the time, which was also connected to Asia because it was Ch- China was the best, uh, the, the most important investor and also a customer for, for their uh, resources. So it's, it's very interesting. They want to become independent. They want to overcome this um, but policies, but the their only way to do it is by depending on one commodity that is going to marginalize part of the population and is going to pollute the environment and is go to, going to cause climate change. So that's kind of something interesting about extractivism. And the last thing, indigenismo, relates to the first thing that I was discussing when I said why I wrote the book. Indigenismo is basically the policies and the ideas of non Indians in Latin America about indigenous people. So, um, and this is inter- important to say in Europe because I have seen in Spain some scholars who think indigenismo is what indigenous people write, but I think they have to look at the long history of indigenismo in Latin America. It starts in the 19th century or even before, but it becomes very strong in the 1930s. And the idea is non-indigenous people thinking about what they used to call the indigenous problem and how to solve it and how to include indigenous people. And it includes two things that are very important to me in the book and also throughout my my other writings before this book, that is what I see as a dichotomy that is also very interesting between open racism, like stereotypes that are uh, openly racist of indigenous people, like indigenous people are dirty or uh, uh, passive or other things. And then the more paternalistic, and this is a very important uh, uh, point in my work uh, throughout all, all my academic career, is to look at how there can be racism that is not hostile but is um, supposedly cares and tries to help these populations but the way of helping the populations is by um, constructing them as basically children and minors that need to be helped therefore as inferior. So I look at the racism there but very often it's not taken as racism because it's supposed to be care and, and concern and love for these uh, groups. So that's something that, that I think is really key. It comes from the colonial legacy. It comes from the hacienda, from the, the way the society was structured in colonial and post-colonial times. And I think it's key to understanding the ethnic relations in Latin America. And I also think it has not been studied enough because of the lack of focus of many of us um, scholars on the people on power we have mostly focused on the subaltern populations on the uh, vulnerable or on the disempowered and not so much on those on the white populations and the ones that are in power so that's why i think paternalism has not been uh, highlighted although there is some work but uh, that's another kind of big uh, theoretical point of of my work
0: mm-hmm. and a very important one um so i'm really glad that you've uh, explained that for us and kind of gone into the nuance of it and going hang on a second um, we might have this assumption but it's worth taking another look um, so now that we've kind of laid out some of these key theoretical points these key kind of um interventions really into the arguments in the scholarship I'd love to now sort of not quite jump around through the book but a little bit um I guess like a highlights tour of picking out particular parts where you show, you talk about something from sort of the presidential side and go, okay, well, here's what they've said they're doing. And then moving to the next bit and going, well, actually, what actually ended up happening? What was the impact of this? And you do this really well throughout the book because we, we show them together rather than sort of one half of the book is the presidential side. One half of this reaction, the fact that they're intertwined shows um, how in a lot of ways, contingent these things or how it's sort of responsive and reacting and changing um, as things do. And it's not purely something that's happening in the Korea administration. As you said, the colonial legacy, there's all sorts of other legacies being tied up with this. Um, so I hope we can kind of give that uh, give that taste as well of, of how this has been woven together um, by going through some of the pieces. So I'd love to start off with, Um, If we really want to talk about kind of pomp and circumstance and the big symbolic things, you rightly show that where and how Correa chose to become president, to have the ceremony of being president, is really significant in this discussion. Why?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a bit. Well, one of the things I do with the, the book is this investigation into power and the people in power. And um, that connects to the first thing why I wrote this book and kind of my positionality regarding the book. Uh, For eight years, I was a professor at Flaxo, which is uh, the Latin American Faculty for the Social Sciences in Ecuador. And so I had a very particular position because um, Correa was an academic. He actually taught some classes at Flaxo And a lot of his government came out from my university even we had the students who became kind of government import, government officials in important uh, positions there so i had the opportunity to have access that's one thing because one of the things with studying power is the question of access and representation. It's difficult to have access to them. They don't want to be studied and they also control their own representation. Uh, So so that was kind of of tricky. The representation I I can talk more about later, but the access. So I was able to be in the first First time that Correa became president, his first investiture, but I was also in the second. I was present in the second. Interestingly, the first one was open to the public so everybody could go, but not many people went because it it was in a very kind of um, faraway place. And in the second one, it was closed. But uh, interestingly, like uh, when we were kind of driving there, they told us, uh, well, this is closed. You cannot come in. And um, I'm very resourceful as a <laughs> kind of an ethnographer. So I said, well, we are from Flaxo. And I showed my it was just I was just trying. So I said, I showed my Flaxo kind of ID. And they said, okay, Flaxo, come in. And they let us in, even though we weren't close to the to the government. So I was able to to visit the two the two presidential inaugurations. The first one was very interesting to me because at that time We weren't yet sure of what what would go on. But I was also lucky because before Correa decided to do it in a very particular community, it's a community in the highlands that is populated by indigenous, by Quechua-speaking peasants, people who speak Quechua and also um, Spanish. And uh, he decided to go there because he was a a kind of... um, lay a salishan missionary for a time in that community and he kind of he used that experience to demonstrate that he had a deep connection to the indigenous world in ecuador the indigenous movement was very very strong therefore he tried to have an kind of make an alliance with them, but it didn't work out because they wanted to go to the elections independently. It was right after Evo Morales was elected in Bolivia, so they wanted to try with an indigenous candidate, but Correa wanted to run with them. He couldn't, but then it was very important to Correa to show his links to the indigenous world and to the left because he actually doesn't have a background in leftist politics. And what he used as his background was this kind of past uh, collaborating with liberation uh, theology as a kind of progressive uh, Catholic. So he decided to do it in that particular community. But I I was very lucky because I had done work before in that community, before Correa was Known or anything, so it was just like a coincidence. So I knew the people there, and what called my attention is we decided to go there, um, and we traveled there in very early in the morning. And when we arrived, we see that um, the kind of the the um, main square of the town is closed to the public, and only important people can enter and important people is mostly white people so that was the first paradox like they, that event represented a lot to me it's like he tries to do an event in the heart of indigenous ecuador but the indigenous don't have like a, an active role and cannot even enter into their own uh, town uh, square except for like maybe a couple of authorities and i also show that he didn't give a voice. to to the indigenous people. They didn't even speak in the event, but it was a whole show because all the government, I mean, um, uh, Hugo Chavez came by helicopter and also Evo Morales and some other people. And the helicopters came to this little kind of small town in the middle of the Andes. So so that was very, and there was a lot of people there of the left and artists and intellectuals. So it was kind of very, very interesting. We could have, I, w- I mean, since uh, we are resourceful, we could have negotiated to be inside with the important people, maybe like the same way I got to the second presidential inauguration, like showing the flag, so ID or something. But we decided not to. We I decided to be with the people and see how they were looking at the event from, from their side. But the interesting thing is that the people, like a, particularly a group of young women that I knew from my earlier fieldwork, instead of being mad that they were kind of excluded from their own town they were happy because people in power had never been there before so that was also interesting uh, to me Uh, so but i think it was very very symbolic and then i show some other kind of uh, events uh, that uh, i had access to for instance another event that was very shocking at the beginning of the government was uh, this um, this event where the secretary of development explained to civil society their development goals and invited all the actors of civil society, including the Catholic Church, the indigenous majors, uh, a lot of different kind of the intellectuals, the NGOs, everybody was there. And then they had this uh, Non-indigenous people dressed as indigenous representing the indigenous nationalities, but with kind of these signs that had the government's messages. So that was also very shocking to me. I, and I went with a friend who was, he was a, he, he was my PhD student. He's indigenous, one of the first indigenous PhDs in Ecuador, and now he's the dean of a the assistant dean of a, of a university there he went with me and we were both like, oh my God. I mean, there was so much difference because from one moment to the other, the indigenous were not actors, they were just background. And and that and that was after all the nineties when the indigenous became actors in, in Ecuador. So so that was, is, but the, I think it, you, I was lucky also to have access and, um, and kind of my position as an academic there helped me in, in having access to these groups not only to the events, but also to talk with some people or to know who they were before they became officials. Or we also sometimes got some information from former students who were hired from the government. And kind of, I have one article, but it's about Mexico. But my article is called we are the government, but we are against the government. But we we found many examples of that in Ecuador. People who were working for the government, but at the same time didn't agree with everything that happened, and they wanted to talk. And so all these kind of informal informations were very, very interesting.
0: Mm, I bet, yeah, um, and especially the idea of being able to flash your university badge and that lets you into an inauguration, um, where you can then watch everything that's happening, which is really, really interesting for what is there and what is not there and how things are being presented. Um, But it goes beyond the sort of symbolic side. You give a bunch of examples in the book of how the actual policies of the Korea administration um, marginalize Indigenous groups, uh, people and movements. And one of the aspects that I thought was really interesting, because it can often kind of go under the radar, is the use of the census and population statistics, right? This can often be like a back office, oh, that's boring, you know, it doesn't necessarily make the headlines. Um, but you show that this actually has a really big impact in Ecuador. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about how these things were used to marginalize indigenous, indigenous movements under Correa? Yeah, that was very interesting. And sometimes research
1: happens by coincidence, <laughs> as I said for the events, but uh there was an, an academic who asked me to write something about the census and it's something that i hadn't thought about before but there was he was writing kind of a, a special issue about censuses in latin america so i started to work on it because it was kind of a something that um, this group decided to do it was not something that i had thought about before because as you can see reading the book i'm not a quantitative researcher, and I'm mostly qualitative, I'm an anthropologist. But um, yeah, I started to do the research on the census and I started to see so many interesting uh, things happening in, in Ecuador. In, in terms of Korea, well, there were different uses of the census. Um, one it was... Um, this, well, this whole debate in Ecuador about the undercount of the indigenous population, which was very another paradox. Ecuador is seen from outside as an indigenous and heavily indigenous country. For decades and decades, everybody has repeated that 40 percent of the population is indigenous. And then when you have the census, the population, the numbers of indigenous are very, very low. Depending on what you use, whether you use language or you use self um, identification. But uh, particularly, and the self identification, well, Latin American governments have used language for a long time as a way to count indigenous populations. And I look at the history of why Latin American governments do that, and that goes back to the early 20th century when they decided that uh, kind of in opposition to the nazis and biological racism in europe uh, latin american governments particularly under the leadership of mexico uh, and the mexican revolution they didn't want to focus on race they wanted to focus on culture because they thought focusing on race was racist and was colonial. So that's why they use a uh, language, although sometimes kind of culture and language are proxies for, for race, and many people have have discussed that. But even with language, the, the numbers were very uh, small. And um, under Korea, uh, they introduced, uh, well, a little bit before Korea in 2000, they introduced self-identification, which is, something that the united nations had been pushing and is also is not also only coming from united nations it's coming from indigenous movements themselves the idea that uh, who is the state uh, to define who is indigenous uh, people should be allowed to self define because for instance there are many people who particularly younger people, they don't, or urban uh, indigenous who don't speak the languages anymore, but they still uh, have the identity and want to define themselves as indigenous. So self-identification was pushed, but under with self-identification, you even had a decrease of the number of, of indigenous uh, people because being indigenous still has a lot of a stigma in Latin America. So many people don't want to define themselves as indigenous. One thing that happened under Correa also was that um, after 2009, there was a big conflict between the indigenous movements and and Correa. uh, And part of the conflict was, uh, I think there were three main issues. One was mining, the other was water, and the third was agrarian reform. And um, Correa wanted to push... um, Large scale mining because of the budget and the uh, indigenous movement as a movement opposed mining. Uh, he didn't redistribute the water, which was a very contentious issue. And think about climate change water is becoming more and more scarce. And particularly in countries where they are producing a lot of uh, water intensive uh, crops like flowers or broccoli or uh, kind of these non traditional agro exports. And uh, the rich people are uh, kind of uh, monopolizing the water. So water was a big issue for for peasants. And uh, they didn't see Correas redistributing the water. They saw Correas pushing the mining that was also going to pollute the water. So the water was involved in that. And he was not doing a kind of um, sweeping agrarian reform. So there was this opposition. And then many People in the indigenous movement were being kind of stigmatized and and, um, prosecuted and um, through uh, the law and uh, harassed also through informal kind of uh, strategies uh, and so on. So many people started to also not want to define themselves as indigenous in the census because they they were suspicious. So the numbers lower, and another thing that I discovered that was very interesting—I I wasn't aware of that before I studied the censuses—is is that indigenous people are very resistant to being counted because um, in colonial times they were counted because they paid taxes, and the white people didn't pay taxes, like the mestizos or the or the. Uh, creoles didn't pay taxes and only the indigenous paid taxes and when they counted them was for tax purposes so they don't like it's interesting how this memory has been preserved so more and more that the united nations was to convince people that they have to be counted in order to get their rights they don't believe it so they kind of are resistant to be counted and the one thing that i look at um, is the the comparison with the Afro-Ecuadorian movement. The Afro-Ecuadorian movement never had this experience of being counted in order to be taxed. And they kind of become organized later in history in the case of Ecuador. And they are much more interested in being counted and also because they um, more their leaders more directly associate also being counted with having anti-discrimination and affirmative action laws so i think one strategy that uh, correa used was to divide the indigenous from other minorities uh, that were more kind of pro-government than the indigenous and i explain uh, very carefully why because this point is is controversial Um, That's another thing. But one of the ways also that Correa used the census was to say that, um, to claim that indigenous were a minority. Once he undercounted the indigenous or once the indigenous didn't want to be counted, he said, well, you're only 7 percent. So you don't have a right to have a say in the policies because we we non-indigenous are much more people. And he started to build kind of continue with this idea of the nation the indigenous has been marginal or even outside the nation, and the nation being a mestizo nation, it was very strong in in um, in Correa's, uh, discourse. But also, kind of the division between indigenous and and the Afro population, and uh, another kind of division. Well, there are other two different two very interesting things that happen in there. One is that the. Um, uh, Kind of the oh they they um, kind of how disconnected to to the discussions on poverty. One of the things that the left did in general in Latin America, but particularly Correa, is to claim that um, they were not um, promoting a, a pro ethnic policies because they were more interested in uh, poverty and that if they targeted poverty and they improve uh, the standard of living of the population, they would be helping indigenous and Afro uh, people. But uh, when you look at the at the statistics on poverty. One thing that I found also by coincidence working with an Afro-Ecuadorian intellectual who was collaborating with me, was that the statistics on poverty had been kind of manipulated. So I present that in the the chapter. And that actually indigenous poverty had um, not decreased or decreased less, depending on um, whether you read one side of the statistics or or the other. but it was very interesting in, that in a country that was claiming to overcome colonialism they would not prioritize the poverty of the indigenous population however if you look at the statistics for the afro-ecuadorian population they are much they are uh, worse than the white and the mestizo population but they are much better than the indigenous And I'm not claiming that there is more racism against indigenous than against Afro. I think there is a lot of racism uh, and violence against the Afro-Ecuadorian population. Uh, Some of the kind of um, way this can be explained is because the Afro-Ecuadorian population is more urban and the uh, indigenous population is more rural. So there is a huge rural-urban gap also. And the other thing that I discovered that I found interesting is that um, I'm kind of losing my track of, of thought, but that but it's it's something important that uh, regarding the, the division between indigenous and Afro populations and urban and and rural. But now I'm losing that. That's
0: fine. <laughs> that, well, I'll yeah. remember
1: it later. Yeah, we'll,
0: we'll come back to that. Um, I I wanted to because one of the things that I thought was interesting in addition. Um, I'm really glad you raised the point about poverty, um, because that does seem kind of an odd thing to kind of get left out. But in these discussions around kind of, well, the data says you're only 7%, 7%, so we can ignore what you want. You show in the book that one of the other outcomes of this um, sort of reframing of whose opinion counts, whose voice counts in public debates was around education. Um, and that this had some really, really big impacts, particularly around policies for intercultural bilingual education, the EIB system, um, that was dismantled under Korea. So, there's, can you sort of explain to us sort of how and why this um, reframing of the indigenous population as not being a big part kind of leads to this particular educational, the piece of the educational system being taken away, and then what were the consequences of that? Yeah, that's that's, that's another point in which
1: uh, things are not what they seem, because according to Correa, he made all the uh, education intercultural, and he was supporting intercultural education, but when you look on the ground to what is happening, it's, it's very different. Uh, there were different things that happen. Education, as I said before, is very important for political consciousness and political organization, and very much linked to the strength of the communities. Uh, because kind of the people who who thought about uh, intercultural education in the 1970s and 80s saw the community as very important for intercultural education. Because when colonialism happened, colonialism destroyed the larger kind of ethnic uh, structures, but only allowed the community to subsist in the form of the Republicas de Indios or Pueblos de Indios, the Indian towns. So it was kind of the only kind of a form of indigenous identity that survived colonialism. So it was very, very important as as an institution to preserve the language, the culture and the social organization so that was very important for intercultural education so what happens in under Korea? Uh, there was also something very special about intercultural education in ecuador it was the only system in latin america that was autonomous uh, from the beginning when it was created so the indigenous organizations were able to Hire the teachers to uh, develop the curriculum, uh, decide on their on their own system of education, which has to do with the particular history of Ecuador and how how the system started. Uh, and obviously, the indigenous people were working with their allies on that. The progressive Catholic Church, the ethno linguists, the anthropologists, uh, some uh, kind of advocates that were uh, working uh, with uh, with them. But so the first thing that Korea does is, uh, and is directly connected to natural resource extraction. Once the indigenous movements starts to demonstrate against uh, um, the mining law and the water law, he uh, discontinues the autonomy of the system which means that uh, indigenous people don't have a control on the curriculum, on the materials, or on the hiring. And I say that this is very important because the Ministry of Education and the Minister of Education is not indigenous. It's a white vestizo person, mostly white, I would say. In that case, in that moment, he was a white man. Um, so they, um, he would make decisions on hirings, on um on curriculum and on materials. And the first thing they did is to kind of change the leadership of the education system. So they did it in two ways. Uh, one was kind of changing the authorities, uh, mostly buying um their like they would pay them to retire to some of them, or they would fire them and change them. And basically, they changed them for either mestizos or younger people who were closer to the regime, who were indigenous. So there was a replacement of authorities. Uh, the, law, the new law of education also forbade um, the, um, the uh, kind of education system to intervene in politics. And this was very. This went happened at the same time that the government was also fighting the um, public education union in, in Ecuador more, I mean, the the union that was not only for the indigenous system, but for the whole system of, of education. The education unions in Ecuador were Maoist. They were kind of uh, Marxist, very militant. So Correa and his government understood these uh, uh, teachers' unions as very, very central in political opposition to the government. and He tried to dismantle them in different ways. But in the case of, of the indigenous, uh, dismantle kind of changed their authorities, uh, retired the teachers who were kind of historical indigenous leaders, forbid political activities in the, in the system. That was a first... Uh, a phase of what uh, they did uh, and give more control to the Ministry of Education on the policies, the curriculum, and the books. Uh, and he changed the books and the books, instead of being these books that had been developed throughout a couple of decades, with the help of these ethnolinguists and experts and progressive church, uh, he changed it for other books that were developed by the Korea government that, uh, for instance, couldn't discuss indigenous struggles and the history of the indigenous movement. And they discussed other things like sumac causae, like this idea of good living, uh, very abstract, that was more linked to the Korea government and not so much to the historical struggles of the indigenous people. So he tried to control... What well, was discussing the system, he tried to control who was leading the system. And the third step that happened in 2013 was when they started closing the, the schools in the communities. And they um, the government of Korea um, uh, closed uh, up to 13,000 community schools. The idea was that the community schools were bad quality, were escuelitas de la pobreza, he called them, like poverty, schools. And the way they did it is the ministry decided to close every school that had only one teacher for all the different grades or that had that where teachers had less than 25 students per teacher. So all the smaller schools were closed. And this meant uh, all the schools in the rural, in indigenous communities and in the rural world. And uh, well, according to them, they were not closed; they were consolidated. So the students were relocated to larger schools, many of them called schools of the millennium, and that relates to kind of United Nations millennium uh, goals. uh, And the idea of of these larger schools was that they would be higher quality because they had more technology uh, and they were larger and they had more teachers and better prepared teachers and uh, but interestingly a lot of these uh, schools were located in bigger towns which were mestizo towns so what you had is indigenous children having to walk for two hours or or more so you were a child and you had to you were a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a, a 12 year old you had to walk from your community 2 hours to school in the morning and come back 2 hours more of, of walking so that was one effect i mean it was dangerous for the kids because sometimes um, my informants or collaborators argued that these people decided on the colon- these people from the from the ministry decided on the colonization with a gps they had no idea of the territory so the kids had to cross rivers or mountains <laughs> or very uh, dangerous roads and stuff like that eh, to go to school Eh, so eh, this was one side the other side was nutrition like kids in communities the mothers came to the schools and brought eh, nutritious food for the kids but if they had to go two hours away the kids were just like eating junk food or not eating at all during the whole school day until they came back home at night. So they had, it had an in, impact on nutrition that one of my my indigenous PhD student has uh, studied more, more closely and many, many other sites. But ultimately what happened is that since there was no school in the community, people just migrated because they wanted their children to go to school. So if they had family in the capital of the province or they had family in Quito, they just left the communities. And there are some maps that you look at that are incredible. For instance, some maps of the northern Amazon. And you see all the schools that disappear. And they are leaving whole oil blocks empty of people. So the other, I mean, I didn't make this connection. It was a liberation theology priest that made it for me. And he said, these areas are getting depopulated and are being open to the companies. And this and then I look at how they specifically uh, the Korea government also targeted communities that were resisting mining and, and other things. So there was like a, a real attack on communities themselves. And the communities were kind of the the, uh, center or the way in which the indigenous movement had been so strong in Ecuador. So that's some of the of the things that happened. And I have to also credit some um, some Ecuadorian scholars. Particularly women who who work on um, who work on education at Universidad Andina, uh, Rosemary Teran and, and Soledad Vena, who were the ones who made me aware of it, it was almost like a cultural genocide that was happening. But uh, we academics uh, outside of Ecuador had not seen it until the, the uh, people uh, working in Ecuador made us aware of, of that.
0: Mm. Well, thank you for making even more of us aware of that um, through the book and obviously through discussing it in the interview. Um, it's really helpful to see how all the pieces go together and really understand um, some of the, yeah, what, what what's happening. It's not certainly simple. Um, so thank you for explaining it. And on the subject of things that are not simple, um, I want to, as we get towards the end of the interview, kind of circle back a bit to something you mentioned at the beginning Is something you've been interested in, Throughout your research, um, around the idea of sort of the spectrum of racist speech and behavior and policy, from things that are really openly racist to things that maybe don't get seen as racist, but really can be and have some really problematic impacts. Um, And so I was wondering if uh, you could tell us about state ventriloquism in Ecuador under the Correa policy and kind of what that has looked like and then how that's devolved into more openly racist um, speeches and policies. Yeah, I think I link
1: ventriloquism to this uh, paternalism that I talked about before, but it's a kind of a specific kind of ventriloquism. And this was uh, is a term that was... Um, used and uh, kind of um, developed by an Ecuadorian uh, sociologist, Andres Guerrero, who actually has also uh, worked in in collaboration in the United Kingdom with with academic theirs, and he's living currently in Spain. But uh, I want to credit him with this this term. But uh, it's very interesting, this question of ventriloquism. and it's very common, I also saw it in Mexico before, because I did my my previous book is, is on Mexico, but they didn't call it ventriloquism. So the term is, is coming from the Ecuadorian social science. Uh, it's this idea that um, non-Indians have kind of the, the right and even the duty to talk for indigenous people, but this dynamic renders the indigenous as passive non-actors and silent. And I trace this this, uh, idea to the colonial past, uh, and also kind of Andres Guerrero does that, when um, indigenous people uh, were um, defined legally as minors who could not represent themselves or speak for themselves. And this is kind of the origin of the whole paternalism, the understanding of indigenous as minors. Think about, for instance, Brazil in which indigenous people of the Amazon were legally defined as minors until the constitution of 1989. So this is, this has gone on in Latin America legally until very, very uh, recently. One of my ideas about um, racism is that it's not only prejudice that individuals hold in their minds, but has like a legal basis. So that's one of the things I, I want to demonstrate in the book. Uh, the definition of indigenous as minors comes from legal definitions in the uh, loss of uh, the Indies, in in kind of the colonial uh, past of uh, Spain and, and Latin America. And also this um, definition that is colonial, but persists in the 19th century of calling indigenous populations miserable. And that's very, very interesting. It's not only a kind of a, an insult, it's a legal term. Miserable meant that they were, they had been, at, in Latin American style, miserable is not meant to be racial. It's meant to be cultural. So the idea is that um, people have been degraded, their cultures have been degraded because of the colonial oppression so much that they are almost kind of not able to be uh, actors in their own kind of um, a way. And it's also about kind of language and um, like inintelligible or illegible language. is about degradation of this population because of oppression and um, the question of them not being able to represent themselves legally and having to be represented uh, by by uh, non-indigenous. Uh, and the Korea government Use that or that kind of legacy had an impact in the Korea government. The Korea government claimed to represent indigenous people, and many people outside of Ecuador and inside believe that there is a continuity between. Um, between the Korea government and the indigenous uh, movements. Uh, and that's where I also talk about academics and their role in all this, in kind of legitimizing these, these governments. So, this idea of the summa causae, the good living, uh, for the Korea government involved the, almost their right to represent indigenous people uh, because they were supporting in their development policies, supposedly an un- ancestral Andean concept of way of life, um, which was very vague as I I demonstrate in the in the in the book. So there was kind of this dichotomy between not accepting indigenous as actors, um, harassing their organization, harassing their leaders, uh, prosecuting and repressing them when they wanted to fight against a mining or for the re- distribution of water and land and at the same time claiming to represent them which was very perverse in a way and that's one of the dichotomies of the of the, of the the government which you also find in interesting or, and sometimes different ways let's say in Bolivia too where um, Evo Morales was uh, talking internationally uh, against extraction and if, uh, against a uh, for kind of better policies to to improve climate change and at the same time was uh, promoting natural resource extraction in his own country and fighting indigenous groups that were resisting extraction. So you have these these two things talking for and at the same time not accepting them as, um, as actors. So I think this is very interesting because there is a whole also role for academics there in legitimizing these discourses that they are, you come from the indigenous world, but I argue that there is never like an ethnography or an ethno history in which they demonstrate that, let's say summa kausai or good living is an indigenous concept. Hmm.
0: So, yeah, I think that's... (laughs) here about in what's happening in Ecuador, how we can study this as academics, how this relates to wider uh, conversations and trajectories in throughout Latin America, uh, based on your previous research, um, things that are happening in other countries now. Um, and so I have to ask, as my last question, um, you're, you know so much about this, and you're clearly so invested in it. So now that this book is done, what are you working on now? yeah well the first thing i was working
1: on is translating the book to spanish <laughs> because i, I mean I, I some um i hired some translators but then i reviewed the translation and that was a lot of work because i wanted the book to be available in Latin america and also to these very people who i' talking about like uh, particularly many indigenous people who don't have access to the English version. So that was my first project. But after that, I have like kind of two projects that are related to to my whole trajectory. And um, I think that you can see with the discussion that we have had the importance of these kind of methods where you look at things comprehensively instead of focusing only on one side and the kind of connections that you can achieve uh, i mean there is a weak point of these methods which is maybe you try to do too much And, <laughs> and uh, but uh, that's the kind of downside of it but on the other hand uh, there is a side of connecting many things that that uh, through kind of uh, more uh, traditional ethnographic methods you, you don't uh, connect but my two kind of projects now is one of them is to do a more theoretical work on paternalism and ventriloquism putting together maybe my work in Mexico and and Ecuador and kind of do a more kind of um, specific article on that uh, uh, that can talk to kind of a larger debate on the importance of... um, these for racism, inter-ethnic relations and for ac- academics. That would be one project. And the second project is there have been very interesting developments in the indigenous movement in Ecuador. There have been two uh, uprisings in 2019 and um, also this year, uh, And uh, the developments that we are seeing in the... I mean, 2019, there is kind of a crisis throughout Latin America uh, that are connected to uh, the the economic crisis that comes after uh, the commodity boom ends, like around 2014. And then there is a a very deep economic crisis in Latin America. And this crisis is actually deepened by COVID. So uh, you have this... uh, groups popular groups in latin america that are really like um, on the edge of survival and it there is a new turn to the left now with it that we have seen in colombia and chile for instance and uprisings in, in mexico in a way is kind of more controversial maybe and um, So, but the thick with the Ecuadorian indigenous movement is that there are groups within the movement that are more urban. And that was one of the things that I kind of mentioned in my book that the indigenous movement had focused too much on the idea of of the indigenous as subsistence, agriculture, peasant, and as rural, but there are more and more urban. So these uh, people are more urban and also so they are the leader now. Sisa, is young, is urban, and he's more willing to ally with urban popular groups. But they are also more open to violent kind of strategies, as opposed to just. Uh, I mean, the indigenous, the the historic indigenous movement in Ecuador is very much linked with liberation theology and with. Um, a passive, kind of, not not passive, but a, a pacific ways of resistance coming from the ideas of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So they were always a pacific social movement, a peaceful social movement in terms of their strategies. But this is changing. And I think it might be like a wider trend. So my two projects are uh, to study paternalism more in depth and maybe the upper classes and the uh, the white uh, mestizo groups and the elites. I do teach a class this semester entitled Latin American elites, but the other project is uh, to look at these changes on uh, ethnic movements becoming more urban and maybe more open to violent tactics, maybe because of this very, very deep economic crisis that uh, uh, is going on after uh, the end of the commodity boom and then after COVID. So those are my my two
0: ideas now. Very interesting Um, and very much building on your work so far, um, which is super cool because there's clearly a lot to unpack there and investigate. Um, So while you are off working on both of those projects, Listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, uh, titled Undoing Multiculturalism, Resource Extraction and Indigenous Rights in Ecuador from the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021. Dr. Carmen Martinez-Novo, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much,
1: Miranda, for, for reading the book, for your very good questions. And also I saw like you do very cool things like working with neurodiverse students. So I'm also very happy to, to learn more about your work and your work in media and, and education. And I admire that too. So Thank you I'm very, much. I am very happy to have met you even if only <laughs> online.
0: <laughs> Thank you.